My name is Martin Shaw, uh, and I am a mythologist, author, and storyteller. And how would you assess the state of health of our culture's imagination in 2017? I would would describe it as ripe for invasion. Uh, And I think when we look at some of the big political moves on either side of the Atlantic in the last few years... Actually, one of the things we're seeing is a yearning for story. And when we are really impoverished, we will take a a big lie with with a little bit of truth in it rather than nothing at all. I'll just wave. You know, I, I don't want to get drawn into talking too much about the machinations of Brexit and Trump, but I'm fascinated by it. Because what I think is going on actually is, is culturally we have a huge yearning for home. But we have profoundly lost touch with what home is or could be. Mm. Uh, in Greek myth, there are two types of quest. There's the kind of heroic quest that you hear about in stories like the Iliad, the Siege, Siege of Troy. But the second type of quest, which in a way I think many of us go through in the second half of our life, is what they call the nostos. And nostos is the quest for home. Uh, and a story I've become really interested in recently for that reason is the Odyssey. It's just a guy, it's just simply a guy trying to get home and everything that tries to block that path. It's like the planes, trains and automobiles of its day. Very well put. Yeah, very well put. And so it's... I think as as I'm listening, as I'm referring to your what you've said, um, I think the tyranny of choice is affecting our imagination. Uh, I think it is hard these days to grow a root system because we're being constantly stimulated by a million different options. 150 years ago, if I rolled up in the Slad Valley in Gloucestershire with a new fairy tale, that would be big news for the rest of the winter and everyone would tell that tale after I'd gone. And interestingly, it would change slightly every time it was told. Its myths are essentially promiscuous, really. They're not meant to be on pieces of stone Uh, whereas now um, if a story is told more than once you presume it's it's boring or or it's not you know well I've got it I've heard it I've got Hamlet I've got Hamlet the oral tradition works uh, with with the bones of things as a writer I've been thinking recently about the difference between what I call skin memory flesh memory and bone memory skin memory is the kind of stuff you put on your cv cv you know uh, i've been living in totnes for eight years or ten years or whatever it is flesh memory is you know the breakups the travails the high points the stuff you remember in your life and you feel emotional about Mm. but the stories the magical component to stories are the ones that activate what you could call bone memory And an example of that would be this. Imagine a laboratory with a little chick in it. And they do these weird experiments with chicks. You've probably seen it where they put over the chick the shadow of a pigeon and the chick doesn't respond. You put the shadow of a hawk over the chick and it shudders. Uh, I guess this is, uh, now what's his, Rupert Sheldrake's probably, this is his idea about morphic resonance. But all I know is that when I tell deep stories, 
this peculiar kind of bone memory comes out where for an hour or for two hours or three days, the bones of people say, well, I, I can't tell you how, but I know parts of this story happened to me this morning. Something utterly relevant right now happens. So what I'm not seeing a lot of at the moment is what I would call bone memory um, around. Uh, I see a lot of bright ideas and I see a lot of brilliant people on laptops and I, and I admire it and I absolutely support it. But my caution, of course, as a mythologist is saying, we have a residue of stories that arrived on time 5,000 years ago and are kind of limbering up. They're in their tracksuits and they can speak directly now into the conditions of our times, of which there are many. And so do you think we are less imaginative than we were 30, 100 years ago? Probably. Probably. Uh, but that's not to say that I don't have a degree of hope about the situation. But when I think, for example, of... I, I grew up with an uncle who... the My uncle Brian, you could bring anything that was broken to Brian. It could be a pair of glasses, it could be a bicycle wheel, it could be something from the garden. And you knew if you brought it to Brian, he would sit and look at it from so many different angles. In the end, it would get fixed. You know, it might have a little kink in it, but it got fixed. And I just wonder what is happening to our imagination when we simply do not have to look at things from many angles anymore. We can separate from jobs, communities, relationships. This phone is three months out of date. I just get another one. Uh, by, not, by simply not having to think through difficult things, I would say that our imagination grows flabby. It's not yeah. that we don't have imagination now, but I would say that for some of us, we can be seduced by comfort. Mm -hmm. Now, myths, here's an interesting distinction. I'm interested in the distinction between the word shelter and comfort. Shelter, you know, for four years, as you know, I lived in a tent. I didn't have a lot of comfort in the tent, but I had a lot of shelter. So if rain came or blizzards came, I would survive the experience, but the edges of my house would breathe. I, would, I lived in a breathing circle for four years. And what I gained in trading comfort for shelter was stories that I felt, again, here's a nice little trade, were not seductions, but courtships. It's a big thing. It's a, it's a big question for me. I don't have an answer to it, but everywhere I go at the moment, I say, do you recognise? What's the difference between a seduction and a courtship? What was happening in America uh, over the election? What kind of seduction was at play that, that created this, seem, this kind of hallucination of a result? How, how did that happen? And what actually would a courtship look like to a place, to a community, to a loved one, to a piece of art. Uh, what would a courtship to the imagination look like? Mm. Uh, one of the things I'm very interested in, again, is the difference between fantasy and imagination. 
you know uh, I notice that I go into mild state usually when I go into a mild state of anxiety it's a kind of trance and it is placed on me usually fairly effectively by something I've read or something that I'm hearing about on through social media and I realize that I feel I'm not I'm not grounded for a few minutes now in many spiritual traditions uh, there is an emphasis that imagination doesn't belong here but is actually a wider thing that you are part of what uh, uh, in the in the Renaissance they called the anima mundi you know the the world itself the thinking of the world and I mentioned earlier on these four years in the tent one of the things that I wanted to do this is a hard this is a very subtle thing to talk about is to move from thinking to getting thought and all of these rites of passages we hear about out on the tundra or in the desert or in Amazonia, one of the things that does link many indigenous cultures together is that at a certain point in your life, you get thought by the earth. Now, what that does is it changes the way you respond to trees and rivers and rocks and your dreams and the dead. And Oddly, without anybody wagging a finger at you, a kind of innate sense of ethics grows in you because you learn how to behave. But it's interesting that reverie, this is an important thing for me in my life at this point, reverie leads to participation. I don't know what your school reports were like, but mine always said the same thing. They said, Martin, he's a nice kid, but he's a dreamer. Mm. He's a dreamer. and That's the mindset. I always took that with that a big badge of... Uh... Pride. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much. Well, look, he, and he and he, we are being dreamers, uh, and <clears throat> actually, the thing about imagination, I think, and the fact that for me, to me, when I'm writing a book, I have to spend lots and lots of time with people not around, and I also think that imagination usually comes with a degree of consequence. So. It's not the same for everybody. My friend Coleman Barks does his Rumi translations and has always done them in cafes full of people. He loves it. I can't operate like that. I need all sorts of space around me. I need to become distinctly antisocial before 10 minutes a day, this peculiar intelligence lands in me. And when I'm teaching, all I'm doing is the 10 minutes a day I've ever gathered, I've just put them in one place and people go, wow, he's really saying some interesting things. <laughs> Most of the time I'm just thinking about shopping lists and school runs, but I just gather my 10 minutes. Um, yeah. And um, there's a question I've been thinking about a lot, <clears throat> a lot recently. So is, is imagination something that's value neutral? Or so is Donald Trump or Hitler, or people, are they, are, they, are they imaginative? Or I read something the other day where they said, untrammeled imagination can lead us down dangerous paths. And I read a thing that J.K. Rowling wrote about imagination, where she said, uh, sometimes I think the unimaginative see more monsters. You know, is it, is it that actually somebody like Donald Trump and that take on things represents either somebody with very little imagination... Does it represent someone who's very somebody who's very imaginative, but who somehow sees it through a sort of a damaged, uh, traumatized 
narcissistic mm. lens is 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 it can you have a good imagination or bad imagination is imagination neither i think imagination is neither um because a macabre you know or a luciferic imagination clearly throughout history brilliant people do terrible things imaginative people do terrible things and a compromised imagination means you don't have the energy to vote, you don't have the energy to participate, and your self-esteem is so horrendously bent out of shape. You are, you are designed for a Trump to turn up and start to pull these, these moves. Interestingly, I have to come back at this point to thinking about the Earth. When... You know, my first profound experiences of the imagination, the, the notion that, that the earth thought in some fashion, I didn't get clear on that quite honestly when I was living in very urban situations. I can see it now, but I couldn't see it 20 years ago. I had to be cut loose. I had to be un, you know, untrammeled for a few years. And then I realised actually, as I've said already, oddly imagination or the imaginal which is a lovely word as a, uh, a scholar that you should have a look at called Henry, you've heard of Henry Corbin no. he was an Islamic scholar and he basically says you know there's fantasy there's imagination and then there's the imaginal and the imaginal is the imagination that is bigger than you uh, and that's really what's tickling away at transition that's why it's got this kind of momentum is you are as well as being a bright person, you're also in service to something else. And that, and that thing you're doing, you're leaving a lot of libation in the right temple because mm. it's going to keep doing that. that. That's the way Corbin would think. Fantasy. So actually, okay, so coming back, I would say that the Trumps and the Hitlers, they don't really trade in imagination, they trade in fantasy. And the fantasies they use are super effective because they frighten or seduce people. And when you are working with the imaginal, you're, this is answering my own question, you are out of seduction and into courtship because that bigger imagination, that bigger consciousness cannot be seduced by you. You're simply not powerful enough to do it. The only thing you can do is have a rapport with it. Uh, so... Imagination gone toxic is fantasy. Uh, imagination in its highest and most effective end is the imaginal. Mm -hmm. And what did you say? Is there a particular book he's done that, that has that in it? Where would I find? Yeah, that? it's. Uh, I'll I'll send it to you. There's a he. This masters that I'm leading, uh, I've co-designed with an anthropologist called Carla Stang, whose work is in the Amazon. It's really interesting fusion we've we, we're developing. Coban. Um, I'll send some different things, mm, thank you. but he's, he's hard to read. You know, he's not an easy read. He's a dry read. Um, but he lays it out really clearly, uh, you know, step by step. And he was a huge influence on uh, a very eminent psychologist called James Hillman. Mm -hmm. And I, I worked with Hillman a little bit, just a tiny bit at the very end of his life, which is why I know he kind of grabbed me by the throat and said, you will study Corban, you will go back, you will work through these ideas. And of course I thought, no, I'm never going to do that. And now here I am about to launch a master's called <laughs> the Mundus Imaginalis, which is Corban's phrase. Okay. Uh, so like you, um, 
I think the imagination is, yeah, it's, anyway. Okay. Um, I wondered if or how you think knowing the names of the places we live, the names of the birds, the plants, having that sort of hearing the birds and knowing what that is, knowing the old place names for places, Mm. how does that help our imagination? It aids and abets. Uh, because how do we know that's their names? You know, it's my thought, certainly when it comes to birds. Uh, one of the things I'm very interested in, actually, is the development of sitting with a tree or sitting with a river or sitting, studying, taking a certain bird as a teacher and not presuming you know its name. And actually, the first step, other than sitting quietly for a couple of days, just seeing if this particular robin or swift shows up, is to look at it from 12 different angles and give it 12 different praise names. So just, and it doesn't have to be uh, emotional, just observe it. And what I'm interested in actually is the names under the names. Uh, It's a very interesting thing. Living Living in Devon, we've got this composite. When you go nearer to... Cornwall you begin to get this Celtic stuff coming out there's Anglo-Saxon over the top Um, so it's useful to a degree it's useful as an orientation but in a strange way I wouldn't take it too seriously as well Mm. because often there are there are names that want to reveal their hand but we have simply lost the homemaking skills I'm just a home ed teacher, that's it. I'm just like a kid at school saying, this is how you make an omelette, you know. How co- the, stories, the stories we're longing for will only show up when the requisite basics are in place, where we're no longer auditioning them. That's what's happening for me a lot of the time in my life now is the phone rings and people say, well, we've got this particular predicament. Give us a story that you audition, you know, we'll audition your folktale down the phone for this particular political mashup. And I'm saying this is, they're not, actually, they're not allegory. They're alive in mm. the way that other things are. If, we, if we're interested in an animistic world, then stories are alive. Imagination is alive. Coming back to the importance of the imagination, it's become this sort of slightly slanderous thing. So it's just in your imagination. I only have to look round for a fraction of a second of my life and say, well, you know, this Masters, which will very soon benefit many, many people, is supremely an act of imagination that is still partially an act of imagination and will, you know, come into... The world is filled with imagination. I don't see it as it's over there and we're here, and I, I doubt that you do mm-hmm. either. William Blake has a lovely phrase for the imagination. He calls it pinpricks of the eternal. And if you notice, for example, that you're suffering profound, prolonged depression and you can't put your finger on it, from a Blakeian perspective, you are missing pinpricks of eternity in your day. You're missing those little moments. And that's one of the things that stories do. They open us. They crack open clock time. Mm, And but do you think that as as we've become 
as everybody's moving around all the time and, and has less and less yeah. of a sense of this is home or less connected to place because we're just continually moving around all the time, that, that not feeling rooted in place has, a, has an impact on our ability to be imaginative? Do you think there is something about coming home to somewhere that helps? This is a big question. Uh, I've just written a book where I, had, I thought about this for five years. Uh, it's called Scatlings. And Scatlings is an old name for somebody that is of no fixed abode. And one of the things I noticed a few years ago is that friends of mine, and myself included at certain points, would rather proudly announce themselves as nomads. And I began to think that actually I'm not a nomad. Uh, it's a slander to nomads to call myself a nomad because a nomad still has connection to place. It's just a bigger place. Mm. Uh, and there's all sorts of uh, all sorts of rituals impacted in the way that they travel that still has a connection to place their water their water supplies the the movement of the animals the stars overhead that's not you can't accuse them of not understanding place yes i think there is a consequence uh for for lack of it but for many people for example especially working in america stories of migration stories of immigration are going to have to be part of the mix mm. so one of the things i'm curious about is is how is that going to play out what is going to happen to the imagination of us culturally where more than ever we are on the move you know um simon sharma i think described you know as a jew he said well he said we have our religion in a suitcase you know and there's a lot of people I know whose spirituality or whatever it is is living in a suitcase now. So I think there is cost attached to it. What I found through writing Scatlings, interestingly, is when you go into the heart of the local, you usually find some, you find a nomadic agency there. A very simple example of that that you will know of is up on Whitehorse Hill on Dartmoor where we came across this 14-year-old girl that had been buried from 4,000 years okay. ago. Yeah, not recently. <laughs> this isn't a kind of... Okay. It's just hit the papers. 4,000 years ago. And what they discovered was 200 amber beads in her grave from the Baltics. So immediately we're thinking, hold on, I need to recalibrate my sense of what's local. Local to Dartmoor were hyenas were mountain lions were elephants were rhinoceros mm. you know the rhinoceros is more indigenous to dartmoor than i'll ever be so i'm having to recalibrate at this point my what i thought was local and what i thought was nomadic are much more mm. woven in than i expected but in truth yes of course there's consequence for perennial rootlessness and there's an inevitability to migration that we've got to start yeah. accommodating yeah. as well. Yeah. You're saying about the body. I remember about the body in the, uh, that they found. I remember going to um, where was it? Somewhere in Cheshire, where they found a body in the peat bog. They were draining this peat bog, yeah. and it got into the news that they had found a body in the peat bog. And this guy went along to the police station and said, "You found a." And he fessed up to killing his wife and burying her in the marsh about 15 years before. And they were like, oh, thank you. Tell us more, sir. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and actually, my goodness. Yeah. Um, 
So our ancestors, the great storytellers, and they did their imagining together. You know, it was a, often it was it was a communal thing. People yes. gather around and be told stories, and we increasingly tend to do ours in isolation, or we just consume other people's. Mm. I wonder if you had any reflections on how imag- how and why imagination is more powerful done with others than on our own, or even if that is even the case. Well, it's certainly different. The, there's an anthropologist called Victor Turner, uh, and he coined a very important phrase, communitas. And communitas is that moment, you know, I, see, I have to see it as a storyteller, where everyone is leaning forward. They're deep in the story. The myth teller is opening up the world to them. And the thing, one of the things that makes it so powerful as a community event is that unlike a book that you would read where described in detail is the characterization of the characters, in oral storytelling, I'm just giving you the bones of things. A woman in the middle of her life came to a great forest. That's it. When I look out, there's 200 people having to imagine themselves in an act of activity, not passivity, what that woman looks like as she enters the forest, uh, and on and on and on. So one of the things that is such a powerful binding agent in community imagination is simply how active it is for the people that are there. Also, when I'm reading, it is a journey entirely inside myself, whereas with the community experience of hearing story, even though I'm doing the imaginative work, I'm aware, touching me like flanks of animals in the dark, are all these other people engaged in the same process. It's actually tacit ritual. I never talk about it in such terms, especially in uh, this area of the country, you know, but it is, it, it's, it's, it's tacit ritual. So a thought I have at the moment, it's a very recent thought, but I've been talking about it a lot, is... Carl Jung, used to, he said, the problem with us now is we no longer hear the lament of the dead. And he was saying that 70 years ago, and things have changed immeasurably for the worst since then. So in other words, to be facing characters like Trump, to be facing any form of, I have to say, you know, you know a wicked and troubled situation, uh, we on our owns are not enough, actually. And any older culture would recognise that. They'd say this world actually belongs to the dead. We're merely renting it. We're only here mm. for a fraction of a second. Uh, it's why the you know the Egyptians built these huge sphinxes but live in very modest houses. They say, well, the real situation happens when we die. It's not now. So we're building this huge sphinx. In a way, the stories of our... There are sphinxes and we're not, I would say, if we don't have ancestors, we have ghosts. And at the moment, one of the reasons we're so terrified is that actually, and I'm not talking about this in supernatural terms. I'm not talking about ancestors in an elevated way because our ancestors were often as crazy as they were brilliant. Mm. But if this sense that there's nothing standing behind us, only our wits, um... Again, that can create a kind of a 
a form of paralysis. Anyway, mm. I'm going on too long, but that's what I would say about mm. the difference between... Also, myth, myth means no author. Myth is not composed by Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette Winterson has never written a myth. Tolkien never wrote a myth. Uh, J.K. Rowling didn't write myth. But what they've done so beautifully is they've written mythic stories. Mm. And I love it, and I encourage everybody to do that. But a myth is to do, actually, essentially, is to do with community events. A myth has to pass through the mouths of many people before it becomes a myth. It's, mm. it's connected to time and space. So when, at the moment, there's this frantic, you know, give us a myth, give us a myth, give us a myth, or I've created a myth, I keep, you know, I'm, a per, I'm becoming a very unpopular man because I'm hearing great inspirational stories that I applaud, but I won't sign off on them as myths because they're not myths, they're mythic stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And if, uh, if, um, if you had been uh, elected instead of Donald Trump, or yeah. if you were elected here <laughs> yes. and you you were elected on, rather than make america great again on a make america imaginative again platform so mm. you you felt this is a time in history when above all we need people to be really imaginative mm. and to be and to be imagining a future beyond business as usual because business as usual is going to kill yeah. us yeah. so we need to have that muscle that you talked yes. about yes. being really and so that that was the key driver behind what you were doing. What would what would you do? I would turn in your first hundred days. My first thing, I I turn electricity off for a month. Just mm. that's what I do, uh, and no light, and and we just deal with that for a little bit, uh, and I would see how that affected people talking to each other with simply without electricity, uh, and I'm aware, of course, with all the uh, ensuing pandemonium that would cause but I don't think it's a bad idea mm. uh, and I think the internet stops and all of that stops We all, and we all know it's for a finite period it's not forever this isn't a lunatic at the controls but this is saying uh, you know any good story any story worth its salt has a period of time in it where you leave the known and you enter the unknown to find out the story that is bigger than yourself, you know, uh, to receive information that is mightier and more mysterious than yourself. And culturally, the days have gone now where one or two of us are going to do that for the benefit of everybody else. This needs to be a cultural enterprise where everybody gets involved. So um, I would do something dramatic like that because we're living in dramatic times. Mm. And actually, without question, um, unless you do something that has an immediate... I mean, it's so fascinating, the moves that Trump made in those first few days of him being in. Uh, with the, I, I was... I, I was. It's one of the most... I can, And I cannot take my eyes off him. He's one of the most fascinating people I've ever seen. I just stare at him like I can't believe this is happening. And the thing that's freaking everybody out, I've gone off piste here, but I've said my bit, I just mm, turned the mm. gas off, effectively. The thing about Trump is he doesn't, he doesn't even appear to be lying in a weird kind of way. That's the real thing. We're used to like these kind of glass-eyed people running. There's this weird like, shit, he's so caught up in himself in this bizarre way, he's sort of telling 
this macabre kind of truth or something. So if I if my life had been crap under Obama, if I was feeling impoverished, if I was feeling unheard, uh, there would be just enough unexpectedness in there, just enough vitality in there for me to to lurch possibly in that direction. Anyway, I don't know. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought there'll be myths about him, I think, at some point. He, yeah. has, he has that sort of I think so. bearing of a mythical creature, yes, doesn't he? Yes, yes. Um, so you, you talk about the uncolonised imagination. Yes. I wonder if you could just say a bit more what yeah, you mean the, by that. When I was a kid, and when we were actually, I'd rephrase that, when we, when, uh, as children, as children, um, we have a fairly innate and immediate response to what we like and don't like until that gets kind of educated out of us. Uh, it's, to use a highfalutin term, it's what James Joyce calls aesthetic arrest. It's like, what do you absolutely love? What claims you? If we look at that wall, that colour, I have loved that colour since I was three. Okay. And that is the colour of myth for me that burgundy it's the color it's that dionysian red it's also the red of the soil where i grew up in, in on the coast really we don't really have it here so an uncolonized imagination for me is some is to be to be open to what truly moves you and to become educated to become you know educated in that response when I grew older, there are all sorts of things I have learned to appreciate. That's not quite the same thing as an uncolonised imagination. An uncolonised imagination knows the colours, the senses, the places it loves. That's why I think it's so important not to just talk about the earth, but to talk about, you know, that little curve near Venford Reservoir where the dark moves in that direction or the oak with the moss on the northern flank. Tom Waits says a story, he says... as he says, a song needs an address. Until there's an address, it's 47, blinks like a street, or a name, or something. As soon as people start talking about a specificity, we all kind of hunker in, and the old ear that lives inside us hears, because they go, oh yeah, okay, you love a place. So an uncolonised imagination knows what it loves, and is not so weak around the edges that... Uh, it can get sort of uh, overly influenced by somebody who recognises a kind of a blank spot in you. Now, what you need to grow that is not just whimsy. You need to be quite robust. In other words, you need to study. And as all my students know, I hate to break this, but you, no matter how good, God, how, no matter how godly your life is, when you die, God will not let you into heaven if you haven't studied. If you don't hold your hands up and say, I did my best, I studied. <laughs> Otherwise, it's somewhere else. I don't know where that is. So an, an uncolonized imagination uh, knows what it loves, is responsive to it, and has educated themselves in that relationship. And so a colonized imagination has been colonized by what? Or it's by been colonized by... Uh, the the machinations of things that may not wish wish you well, you know that may may not wish you well. Uh, that could be it could be politics. It could be it could be any strong presence that makes you smaller. Um, 
that folds you. Okay, here's a wonderful phrase. Raina Maria Rilke, the poet, says, wherever I am folded, therefore I am a lie. And I see a lot of folded people. And even, and actually, to honestly, I see folded people that claim to be spiritually enlightened and claim to be politically au fait and all of this. But you just see, you see that, that they're all mashed up mm. somewhere. Mm. And then you see people that don't make any of these claims. And you go, wow, that's a real, that's a human being. I've just seen a human being. I've only seen like five, but I just saw one. It's usually some old boy just wandering off the moors at a bit of barbed wire, you know. And it's like, oh, it's a human being. I, I've heard of you. Um, so that's what I think a colonised imagination looks like. And you mentioned before we started, you said something about, something like, uh, something about information and statistics that statistics can that our imaginations can be overwhelmed by well they're par- yes it's a great it's a great form statistics are a great form of paralysis uh, they're also a wonderful at making you feel that something is hopeless one of the things that binds almost all myths together and folktales around the world is it begins with the essential sentiment that you are outnumbered and outgunned and nothing much of interest is going to occur until you're in that jam up until that point, you're kind of sleepwalking through things. Again, it's comfort, not shelter. But stories open up in people's lives and they open up mythically. Uh, when, when, when you hit something where you say, actually, for sure, intellect is important. For sure, thinking this through is important. But right now, I need something bigger and stranger and more magnificent than my own sense of hopelessness about this. Mm. Uh, how do I re, you know, how do I recalibrate my imagination? Uh, I would also suggest that imagination supports you when you cull something else in your life and give it as an offering. So, in other words, this idea that you can be anything, uh, anything you want. And you can do all of these different things. And, uh, you know, you can be a sculptor, you can be a politician, you can be a jazz drummer, you can be a five rhythms dancer, you can do all of this stuff at the same time. I think it thins you out too much. And I think if the imagination is bigger than us, it doesn't usually respond to it. You get people, uh, to use that quote, who are three miles wide and two inches deep. The kind of imagination that I think has nutrients and resonance usually has come from giving something else up you know uh, I look around and I mourn the fact that I, ca- I cannot be a painter now I cannot be a painter and do what I'm doing but my imagination has been in in I'm almost making a word up in deepened undeepened has 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 grown more profound by what I've actually had to sacrifice around it boundless endless freedom oddly doesn't usually engender imagination what engenders imagination for me is a deadline <laughs> and some and some uh limits mm. actually uh in mythological terms uh this is a relationship in greek myth they talk about the puer and the senex the puer is like peter pan mm. the senex is the old man now the peter pan in you is the one that excites the team says guys Late, we, I've got a plan. This is how we're going to do this. And everyone goes, oh, we're right behind you. 
but as you're saying it, you're slightly float, floating out of the window. And then in Greek myth, the senex is this old being that grabs your ankle and says, wait, if you go any higher, you'll, burn, you'll be burnt by the sun. It's like an Icarus moment. And the job in Greek mythology of being a true human being is to live in the tension between what the senex desires for you mm. and what the puer does. Neither is meant to win because if the puer is brought down to earth, they lose that wonderful vitality. Mm. But if they escape entirely, they're off. Yeah. And, it's, and what's interesting is we realise that the myth is saying if you're, going to leave an if you're going to lead an imaginative life, you are probably going to live it in a certain degree of useful tension. Mm -hmm. most, of the, most of the really, really peaceful people that I meet are not that imaginative, actually. They're beyond, you know what I mean? There's a sort of a benign quality to it where I'm saying, you're not, what's keeping you up? Something's got to be keeping you up. So I guess, you know... I guess there's different gradients of imagination. Again, a philosopher to think about is Gaston Bachelard. His book, The Poetics of Space, he looks at the imagination of a house from a cellar to an attic, what's going on in each room. That's brilliant. But I guess there are different types of imagination and I like outlaw imagination. I don't like... Uh... But if it's too peaceful, I'm just... I don't. I, I just don't trust harmony. That's all. I just don't trust it. <laughs> and it seems like at the moment, like whenever you read anything, particularly post-Trump, but it was been around for a while. And there's this. There's there seems to be this sort of uh, common sense that the future is going to be shit. Yeah. We seem to have sort of bought into this sort of idea that it's just going to be really shit. There's nothing to look forward to. It's going to be rubbish. Yeah. And uh, it's just going to get worse and worse. Like, why? And, 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 and how, do we, how do we shift that? Mm. Good, good. Well said. Well said. Because it's like, who says? <laughs> but it comes from everywhere. And it does come from everywhere. It's, it's astonishing. Uh, and I, I guess, to be honest, between me and you, my initial response to that is... We are just, again, probably not for your book, we're just too fucking soft. And we have simply, the people, the people that voted for Trump, by and large, have gone through more horrible shit than most of us. Mm. And actually, when I see that kind of very passive, sort of moaning perennial depression... A, it's someone with no mythic intelligence whatsoever, because if they had a, a second of storied language in them, they go, wow, this is the moment. Actually, mm. this is the moment. It's not necessarily about victory, but this is a capacity. Uh, okay, Thomas Cromwell said, a strong man works within his restrictions, something like that. I, have a good, I loved that. I was like, you don't just say, oh, God, there's restrictions. <laughs> I can't operate. You Dullard, you have to rise up at that point. And uh, yeah, this malaise, this malaise is the, is the correct word that has been, is being kind of dolloped culturally at the moment. I think it's just partially that if we, again, this is you see, lack of ancestors. If we, were around, if we were around people that lived through the Second World War or some real shit, you know, mm. they'd have something to say about us sobbing into our biscuits at the moment. Mm. They really would. Uh, 
so I find it distasteful. It, it irritates me. And um, you really need... I, I wish... I wish mythic intelligence to just crack open what's underpinning all of this stuff. I'm going to America with Paul Kingsnorth uh, in a few months simply because I've got stories that are like a like an x-ray of this right now. And we're just going to teach these stories and not deliver it like a polemic, but to say, eat this. What do you think about this? Um, I would have every, every 20 miles up the road, there should be somebody teaching... Uh, in a humble manner you know the mythic underpinnings of this stuff because i think what's spin i think we're like hamsters spinning on the wheels because we simply can't see what's underneath it this phrase that you'll have heard me use before the river beneath the river the mexican things ironically that it's mexican with this wall um if we could see what was underneath it we wouldn't be so paralyzed by it again to think about greek mythology you're not when medusa appears if you stare at Medusa, you are paralysed or turned to ashes. That's that uncompromised gaze. It's what's it's what's colonising everybody. In myth, there is a shield, and you can interact with the being by the monster by looking at its reflection in the shield. The shield is called myth. The shield is called story. The shield is called community. The, the shield is called poetry. The shield is called activism. And that is the thing that deflects, uh, deflects paralysis and it deflects uh, burnout as well. Mm. So I think if we keep looking at the guy and what he said and the statistics, we ironically are not serving ourselves by that. Mm. We're just making ourselves much smaller because myth, to speak of something psychologically, it makes it smaller and seemingly more manageable. To speak of something mythically makes it bigger and more luminous. And actually what we're hungry for, really at a moment like this, is actually a sense of rising up and a sense of, uh, to use a really big word, vocation. Not jobs, but vocation. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we could just turn the dial, if we could just tune this a little, a little more acutely, it would be seen as, I said this to you maybe five years ago, this is this is uh, opportunity disguised as loss. Mm. It is. Mm. It is, mm. and it meant something when when I said that a long time ago, and it means more now Absolutely. than it did then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's interesting the thing you're saying about about constraints because it's it feels like uh, I was talking to someone recently who was saying you know when the, you know when we, we look at sort of stuff like the Gershwin sort of musicals and stuff, and we go, wow, God, they were so. Imagine we have this idea of them all sort of sitting around going. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, wait for, waiting for the muse to strike. It was yeah. like, right, 12 songs. I need 12 songs by next Thursday. That's and they were at the piano fucking banging them out. You know? That's it. And, That's uh, it. and, yeah. and having, having constraints around imagination of what, of what like it's like we transition, doesn't say, hey, imagine what Ashburton could be like in 20 years. It says, right, imagine what Ashburton could be like, given that we've got this, 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 and this, and this. And then that's where the real kind of imagination kicks in, I think. People are come up with much better ideas yeah because you're giving you know, no hoverboards yeah you're giving you're giving a bit of pushback uh, and saying okay this is you know um, in mythology one god on its own is ineffective what matters in a myth is is the spark of of things crashing together 
that's when it happens it's always a community of deities that cause the trouble it's never one on their own and so when you say you have endless opportunity endless harmony there's no sense of a deadline there's no eros in that because your your little spark of electricity is not banging into anything as it's got nothing to respond to mm -hmm. uh, there's a lovely old phrase uh, it's a french phrase a bricolage a bricoleur and the bricoleur is the artist that is kind of stumbling along and says, well, okay, what have I got to work with? I've got this cup, but the cup on its own is, is not terribly interesting. But I've got this phone, and if I do that, and I do that, and something begins to happen mm. between these uncommon elements being brought together, this new thing begins to emerge. So I applaud that about transition, that you, that you do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So any last thoughts for somebody who's about how we doing for time? Oh, we're all, we're good, we're good. Um, Final thoughts for somebody who's about to do something about imagination <laughs> in that way? I would do a bit of reading. As I said, I would read... Um, There's a book that I particularly recommend by... He's the first teacher who's coming to teach on the Masters. He's called Tom Cheatham. And the book is called Imaginal Love. And it the subtitle is The Meaning... The Meanings of Imagination in Henry Corbin, which is like Corbin, and James Hillman. And it's a beautifully written, very straightforward book about how those two guys thought about what imagination mm. was. What's called Imaginal Love. Yeah, Imaginal Love, uh, okay. The Meanings of Imagination in Henry Corbin and James Hillman. Okay. Uh, and if you like it, then, yeah, Cheetah will be here with me and Carla for a week uh, in early September. So actually, okay. he would be a guy, he really would be a guy to talk okay. to about oh, it. And actually, actually, if you're still writing it by then, which I'm sure you will be, oh, yeah. uh, there are a number of scholars, Harvard professors, little Greek storytellers from Crete, all sorts of people coming, all who'd have something interesting mm -hmm. to say. So Wonderful. keep me in the loop. I will. Uh, but I would... I would just read back a little bit, you know, what did the romantics mean by imagination? Uh, what was, what is, what is, what is, what is the Greek, what, what is, what is a Greek person, what did they mean when they imagined something? Why do the Greek gods have these little porcelain faces, but everywhere else the, the gods have the faces of animals? What was the move between the animal gods and the porcelain gods, mm. things like that? Mm.